At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. His promise never breaks and his beauty never fades. Amen? Amen. Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. Thank you. For those that don't know me, my name is Glenn Aarons, and my wife and I are members here. And by the grace of God, I get to stand before you today to uh, proclaim God's word. And I am so grateful for that. But before I do that, I have a question. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? And I don't mean with me standing up here today. I'm sure some of you are saying, well, I just saw Pastor John. Why is he not speaking today? What I mean is are you satisfied with your life? Do you have the home you want, the, the wife or husband of your dreams, the car that makes you happy to drive, the children that make you proud? See, many times we judge our satisfaction with the things of this world. Not that there's anything wrong with being happy with your house or your spouse or your kids, but are you satisfied? Maybe we find ourselves looking for the next best thing. If only I had that boat of my dreams or that I always wanted or maybe that relationship that would bring me greater joy or maybe that other job where I'd be valued. I guess the bigger question out of that becomes, do we find ourselves linking our satisfaction with the things of this world? In my studies this week, I've asked myself many of those questions. Where am I finding my satisfaction? What desires do I have that are unfulfilled? What parts of my story do I still think need to be filled in some way? Or maybe they need to come to a better conclusion. Maybe you've noticed, but we don't live in a utopia. I have unmet needs. Maybe you do too. I do remember in English, studying in, in school in English class, which was like over 40 years ago, which is really sad for me to say, but, but I remember studying in English class and learning about a story arc. If you were going to write a compelling story that people would want to read, there are certain elements that need to go into that story so the reader at the end would be satisfied. Otherwise, you could get some really bad reviews or in that class a really bad grade because unsatisfied people write some really bad things. And you can see that over a lot of social media today. But we learned about something called Freytag's Pyramid. In 1863, there was a gentleman by the name of Gustav Freytag who was a German author, and he used a pyramid model to study plot patterns in narrative fiction that every story needs to have these five elements to make the story compelling and to flow. It starts with the exposition, which is telling of the character, the conflict, the setting, and then the rising action that tells of the character's attempt to solve the problem but fails. And then the climax, or the turning point, which is of the greatest suspense, 
the greatest suspense or action. That was easy for me to say. The falling action or the events that occur after the climax. And then the resolution where the conflicts or the problems are solved. It wraps up in a nice little bow that the reader can understand and identify with. Now, I believe the reasons that we love stories that follow this arc are things get resolved at the end. The hero wins. Courage wins. Love wins. That what Hallmark has perfected in their movies is possible for you and I also. In the end, we're all asking the same question, are we going to make it? And these stories say, yes, yes, you're going to make it. Yet many in times in life, we, we don't make it. We don't get the recognition at work. Our children don't always do the next right thing. We're unhappy in our jobs or our relationships or in what we own. Our vision is short-sighted and we're not satisfied. The Bible, however, makes it very clear that history is moving purposely towards a goal, towards a very definite conclusion. I've shared you with you before that I'm a recovering alcoholic, that after 35 years of sobriety, I still go to meetings. I had a discussion with, after a meeting with someone recently, and I, I told him that a part of the reason I still go is because I need to hear people's successes. I need to hear that this is still able to be overcome. Why? Because I'm not sure that this is going to work for me for the rest of my life. I have no guarantee. I've seen far too many go out again. So I need to stay with those who are staying. I need to hear how they overcome. I also need to share how I'm overcoming, which is the exact same reason of why I attend church. I need to stay with those who are staying. I was so grateful when I got to see what verses God gave me to share with you this week. I have truly loved that I've been able to study the Bible and that I continue to study the Bible to see the revelation of God's story from creation to the fall to the redemption through Christ on a cross, through the growth of his church and then through to the resolution. It tells me that Jesus made it. And because he made it through faith, we can make it also. The resolution that we're about to read about, it's ours in Christ. It is ours in Christ. Now many of you know also that I have a daughter that's been going to school in New York City in theater arts. Because it's a school in theater arts, they have a pretty big social media presence. And they highlight what they're doing and they post videos and pictures of their classes. And anytime they post, I am always looking for Sarah to get a glimpse of her and her setting there. Maybe you remember when your child brought home their yearbook, or maybe when you brought home your own. What was the first thing you looked for? Maybe you attended an event where they took a group picture up on the stage afterwards and stuff, and when you first got a copy of that picture, what did you look for? Where you are, to see you in the picture. In Revelation 20 and 21, there is a group picture that's taking place. Everyone, everyone ever created is in that picture. Last week, we saw some of those who were included in the picture that were cast into the lake of fire, those without Christ, those whose names were not in the book of life. This week, we get to see those whose names are included in the book of life. So in this picture of everyone ever created, there are two camps, those who are in and those who are not. 
Jesus in his parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 31 through 46 tells of how the king seated on his throne will separate the sheep and the goats. Starting in verse 32, the word of God says this, all the nations will be gathered before him. That's all the nations. That is everyone. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the Bible goes on to say, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But to those on his left, he says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Before we get into Revelation, I have to ask, where do you find yourself in this picture? As you scan that picture to find yourself, where are you? Are you on his right? Or are you on his left? If you find yourself on the side of the goats, I have good news for you. There's still time. You're still breathing. He hasn't returned yet. You are not stuck there. Just because you may find yourself today, the final picture has not been taken yet. The story isn't over. But it is coming to a close. Yet before this story and this study, actually, in Revelation ends, I want to give you the opportunity to relocate yourself in this picture if you find yourself there. I want to say as straightforward as I can that the matter of your location in this picture isn't insignificant. It has eternal consequences. This is real. And it's solemn. The necessity of faith cannot be ignored. So how can we be assured that we're on the right side of the king? How can I be sure that my name will be found in the book of life? The only answer I can give you is the answer the Bible gives. That we may be sure of our name being in the book of life only by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is always urging us to look to Christ, who will freely pardon and justify us as a result of our coming to him in repentance and in faith. My prayer has been this week and continues to be that you'll see that today. And we see in Revelation that fact that God is making all things new. This is the undoubtable, undeniable, undisputable end of the story. Regardless of how it appears to you today, and it's a mess out there, God is making all things new. Turn with me, please, to Revelation 21 as we explore where our hope should lie. But first, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do hear our prayers. We need you, Father. We desperately need you. And we need your help as we study the Bible and as we live out our lives. I pray that your spirit will be our teacher and that you will give us an understanding and sensitivity to the text that we're reading today. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us this day. And Father, if there are some here that haven't yet placed their faith in you, may they come to trust and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, the word of God says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, the detestable as for murderers, the sexually immoral, moral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look back with me, if you will, at the first two verses. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that is our first point. We have to see the new reality. And it is a new reality. When we use the word reality, we mean that. Do you believe that the greatest news for Christians has not happened yet? In the end, the greatest news is that all things are made new again. You see, we've ended up really with what Augustine classified as two cities. The Bible classifies it as such also. Babylon and the New Jerusalem. He wrote in his book called The City of God that two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly love of God, even to the contempt of self. The overarching principle is this, that from the beginning to the end of time, since the fall of man, there exist two rival cities, two rival societies, two rival loves. By our nature, we're involved in the city of man, and only by God's grace will we ever be involved or devoted to the city of God. A new heaven and a new earth is a very important biblical principle. Douglas Kelly in his commentary writes that God acts negatively only to make room for the positive. We see this throughout Scripture. Negatively, there was a flood. Positively, there was a remnant left to start again. If you look at any of the judgments of God through the Old Testament, you will always see his mercy also in action. Negatively, you see God's people in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Positively, you see his people, which notably began as about 70 that went to Egypt originally, that came out of the Exodus after the plagues, numbering somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. God, in the midst of extreme persecution, grew his people. 
And most importantly, we see his son, Jesus Christ, crucified, yet to bring about our salvation. A new heaven and a new earth is a whole new reality, a new kind of existence in which all the negatives will be gone. He effectively takes every negative out of creation. Now, we all know the first heaven and the first earth from our personal experience. This is where we live. We have grown up loving the creational context that he brought into existence. And at the end, he's going to restore and renew it. He's not going to annihilate it. It's a new heaven and a new earth, but not a newness of origin, but a renovation and a transformation of what was. God acts in such a way to finally remove all evil so there'll be nothing but good. Maybe we have a hard time understanding what that means. I have a hard time wrapping my head around what the world would look like with no evil. But we've already been given a template. We already have a picture of it. What can we know about a heaven and earth that are completely renewed but not done away with? But what do we know about the resurrection? We know about the resurrection from the one who was resurrected. Jesus did not lose his identity. There's a continuity that exists there. Jesus Christ is the paradigm of the redemption. Although our bodies must be laid down to dust one day, they're not going to be totally annihilated or done away with forever. Just as we don't know exactly how Jesus or how God raised his son Jesus to life again, we do not know exactly how he will raise us either. But we will be raised. We will be raised. And while there will be continuity, there will also be a transformation, a purging, a purification, and a glorification. The purpose is to reverse the effects of the fall and make us perfect human beings who radiate God's glory. If you want to read more about that in the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3 gives a beautiful example of how to live in light of this. When John writes that the sea will be no more, he is referencing what the sea represented. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, writes this, The sea was viewed as a hostile, uncontrollable personification and source of evil. In Revelation, it refers to the origin of evil, the nations that persecute the saints, the place of the dead, the location of the world's idolatrous trade in a body of water. The sea will be gone means that every raging government, every form of political and personal evil will be gone. And then John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All three of these terms, holy city, new Jerusalem, and the bride, are referencing the same thing. The church, the church universal, the people of God from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, from the first promise of that gospel to our fallen Mother Eve, down to the last person who believes. The New Jerusalem is set against a city mentioned earlier, Babylon. These cities were pictures or images or symbols of the world, which is Babylon, versus a place where God is glorified, which is Jerusalem. So the New Jerusalem that he saw coming down is not a place for people. It's people. For a place. The place is the new heaven and earth. And the people are the bride of the Lamb. 
I mean, that's huge for us. It's huge for us. The hard part, though, sometimes when we look at the church, it's easy to see her flaws, to see her imperfections, her inconsistencies. But we can't remove ourselves from her. If you are in Christ, then you are permanently bound to her. What's the alternative? To not be found in Christ? To be separated from the bride? Separated from God? So while at times the church may look ugly to you, she's not ugly to God. She's not ugly to God. God loves her. The Lamb loves her. We are the corporate bride of Christ. All the more reason for us to act appropriately. At times we get lulled into thinking that the future is some nebulous or unclear, vague or ill-defined thing that, that we become angels and have some existence in the clouds somewhere off and we don't know exactly where that is except for it's up. And due to that, our motivation to share the gospel can be lulled to sleep. We don't think of sharing the gospel much because we don't think much of what is to come. But instead, instead, what if we can know that it'll be a fully human experience free from the effects of sin? What if all the colors, all the tastes, all the expressions, all the sounds will be heightened to their fullest sense? With that incredible thought, we can share with confidence what's to come. It's not that life gets good here. It's that life gets perfect there. There's a segment in the movie, The Jesus Revolution, where Lonnie is first meeting Chuck Smith in his home. And explaining what he's doing, he tells Smith that uh, there is an entire generation now searching for God. He goes on to say, we thought acid was going to save the world. That was a lie. The Woodstock generation, he says, is looking for meaning in all the wrong places. Of course, that's true of every generation, isn't it? Including modern day. We continue to search for satisfaction in all the wrong places. You see, we not only have to grasp the concept of the new reality, we have to grasp the reality of our new home. And that's truth. We have to grasp the reality of our new home. If you will, go back with me to verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love these verses. They mean so much to me and they mean so much to us as a church. But I want you to notice a few things. This just isn't a community of human beings. This community is dwelling with God. That's so important in the text that John says it three times in the same sentence. The dwelling places with man, he says. He will dwell with them, he says. God himself will be with them as their God. 
Every square inch of what is made anew is the dwelling place of God, and his people will live among him. Please understand that the presence of God with his people will not be interrupted as it is here. He will dwell with us continually. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes this, God himself will be their God. His immediate presence will be with them. His love fully manifested to them. And his glory put upon them. And they will be, and that will be their perfect happiness. Their satisfaction. John describes our relationship with God through Christ in covenantal marriage language. The aim of the Garden of Eden, of the tabernacle, of the temple, and of the church will be finally realized. I don't know about you. I long for that day. I long for that day. I see the pain, the suffering, the anxiety, the mental and moral disturbances, the various sicknesses all around us in this world. Look at all the ways we hurt each other. Racism or sexism or resentments, elitism. The list goes on and on and on. The value of life around us seems to have fallen off the cliff. And I know I am not home. I'm not home. Did you ever have a child stay somewhere that was going to, that while they were somewhere else, they, they became so homesick that all they wanted to do was go home? They're crying because they know at home is safety and is love. And when you get there to pick them up, you wipe away their tears, and they know that they're safe in your presence. God promises in his word here to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You're home. You're safe. You're loved. I long for that. And it truly begs the question that I've been asking myself. What are we living for? What motivates us? Are we satisfied? Are we satisfied here? Please realize that God absolutely gives us the freedom and blessing of enjoying what the world has to offer. But there's a huge difference between living for the world and living for God while enjoying the good that he gives us in the world. So what do we have to grasp about God's future for us that will help us right now to help us where we sit, where we move, where we have our being right in this moment? Well, we truly need to see this new reality and trust that God is truly bringing about this new reality. We need to know that not only are we not home, but he is creating our new home. Jesus in John 14, as recorded in our Bible, says this, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We have a new home waiting for us, one that moth and rust cannot destroy. And lastly, we need to receive his promised word. Not just hear it, not just think about it, but we need to receive his promised word. Look with me at Revelation 21 again, the second half of verse 5 through 8. Also he said, 
write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we're left with a choice. We're left with a choice. Jesus, the Word of God in flesh, the one who is called faithful and true, says, it is done. Now that should sound very familiar to you. Because at the end on the cross in his crucifixion, he said, it is finished. Now the victory of the cross isn't truly fully realized until and when the destruction of God's enemies and the salvation of the saints are both accomplished. But we can know this will all come to pass because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He stands beyond the universe's beginning and its end as sovereign creator and consummator, the first and the last. He gives us the water of life. Remember the woman at the well? In John 4, Jesus says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. To which she replied, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, John's also referencing in this, in this portion of Revelation the imagery of the Old Testament in Isaiah 55 where the Word of God says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that that does not satisfy? Listen Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. While the band comes up, I do have some questions for you. Do you see the invitation of God's kindness to you this morning? Do you see the invitation of his kindness? Even with our baptism that took place this morning? Baptisms I have always loved because they re-remind me through those testimonies of what Christ has done for us. It was testimonies that first brought me to faith when I was 32 years old. It's those testimonies that continue to give me hope that I know I know that God still wins. I know it through that. See, he's calling you to come into the safety of his son, to come into the refuge that he's provided for you, 
He's calling you to come. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't this the way the whole book ends? In Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Do you hear this? Have you responded? Have you ever come to Jesus? The question isn't, have I come to believe certain facts about Jesus or the Bible? Don't forget, even the demons believe, and we find that in James 2.19. The question isn't, have I altered my external way of life from one that was really marginal at best to one that's now somewhat acceptable? The question is, have you ever got so spiritually thirsty that you said, Lord Jesus Christ, give me that water. Give me that living water. Have you ever recognized your own spiritual poverty despite the fact that you might be able to buy anything that you currently need? Have you ever been prepared to recognize your own spiritual poverty that pointed you to the fact that you can't buy entry into the kingdom of God? Maybe you thought, what if he turns me away? What if I'm not one of the group? What if I'm not supposed to be in the book? I say don't listen to the lies of Satan. Those are lies. What did Jesus say? Whoever comes to me. Whoever comes to me. He said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. It's John 6, 37. Is God saying all I need to do is come? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Cast yourself on God's mercy and move beyond the logical section of your brain and allow it to permeate your heart. What does that take? Just follow, just acknowledge that uh, you failed to treat God properly, that you've denied or defied him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.